In May, Hamas leaders in Gaza, a territory from which Israelis withdrew in 2005, launched more than 4,000 missiles at Israel, sparking an 11-day conflict that would have been bloodier on both sides had the Israelis not been in possession of the Iron Dome, a system that intercepts and destroys short-range missiles before they can reach their intended victims. In other words, the Iron Dome is not a weapon, but rather a shield. Last month, members of the squad, far left House Democrats, blocked the bill to keep the federal government operating until it was stripped of funds to help Israelis replenish interceptors for the Iron Dome. A few days later, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer brought Iron Dome up as a standalone bill. There were 420 votes in favor and nine opposed, including eight members of the squad. But U.S. support for the Iron Dome is still a subject of debate in the Senate. To discuss these and other issues, we're joined by Jacob Nagel, who has served in the Israeli Defense Forces with the rank of Brigadier General. He's also served in the Israeli Defense Ministry and the Prime Minister's Office, including as the head of Israel's National Security Council and acting National Security Advisor, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He headed the Nagel Committee, which was responsible for Israel's decision to develop the Iron Dome as the nation's short-range missile defense system. And by the way, he led the negotiations and signed the Memorandum of Understanding, the MOU, for U.S. military aid to Israel from 2018 to 2027. He's currently a visiting professor at the Technicon Aerospace Engineering Facility and a senior fellow at FDD. Also with us is Enya Kravin, senior director of FDD's Israel program, as well as FDD's National Security Network and Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power. He served as a National Security Advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committees. Prior to that, he was an active duty U.S. Army officer, Blackhawk pilot, and assistant professor at West Point. I'm Cliff May. I'm glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. enforces some rules in the world, or there are Every no U.S. Rules. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Okay, welcome to you all. Professor Nagel, or you prefer General Nagel, or Professor General. That would be a mouthful, I suppose. I, I prefer Jacob Nagel. Okay, Jacob's good too. Look, I said we're going to discuss Iron Dome and the controversy that, that erupted, but let's back up just a bit. You. You were instrumental in help creating it. Give us a quick account of how that came about. Iron Dome, it's really something that a lot of books have been written about. There was a lot of debate about Iron Dome. I can tell you as the bottom line, the Iron Dome is doing today much more than what we anticipated, technically and operationally. Now, you mentioned it. Iron Dome is very good for the Palestinians. Because without an Iron Dome, 
Israel would, should do other things in Gaza. So if I was the squad, I would say give Israel not one billion dollars for Iron Dome, give them five. But when we started Iron Dome, and I think it's important because most of the people don't know, Iron Dome was developed totally using Israeli money. The aid the United States gave to Israel was to procure, produce, and to buy systems. The development of the system took us a year to get the approval. February 2007, we got the approval. December 2007, it was signed between the MOD and Rafael, and the first two systems was acquired. When we signed the MOU, Obama insisted there will be a clause in the MOU saying all the other things, Israel is not going to ask for more FMF money, 3.3, the half a billion for the ballistic missile defense. It's written if there will be a confrontation in Israel, it's legitimate, it's worthwhile. We want Israel to come and ask from the United States a supplementary money in order we will be able to continue defend the state of Israel. Uh, Enya, I, I said a little bit about what happened in Congress. Maybe there's a few more details that, that you want to add. I mean, we had, again, we had we, we had the, uh, an emergency bill, a, a must-fund bill that was held up. Uh, and then we had a standalone bill, which most Democrats supported, other than those um, in, the, uh, in, in the squad. One Republican was against it. He would say it wasn't anti-Israel. He's just against foreign aid as a matter of general principle. And of course, um, Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez ended up voting present. Uh, the theory I've heard as to why is she may want to run for the Senate in New York and is afraid that her opposition to a bill that would save Israeli lives, that is, is not a weapon, but is a, a def purely defensive, would hurt her. Although, in a way, that, that horse is sort of out of the barn, isn't it? I don't know. Just give your thoughts on what happened in, the, in Congress. Sure. So thanks, Cliff. Uh, thanks for having me here today. Two two things. So yes, AOC and squad and squad adjacent blocked the bill in the House last month. Um, but something else happened this week, which I think is worth touching on, which is Rand Paul blocked the same effort in the Senate. So let's, let's just to unpack that a little bit. You have Rand Paul in the Senate and AOC in the House, right? Very unhappy with the same funding bill, essentially which gave Israel about this $1 billion to replenish this life-saving defensive system. But they did it for very different reasons. Paul prides himself in being a fiscally conservative, libertarian, non-interventionist kind of Republican, and attempted to offset the Iron Dome spending by allocating other funds that had been earmarked for Afghanistan early in the Congress. So publicly, Paul said, as he tends to do when he blocks these, these large aid bills, that he supported Israel and he just wanted to offset the spending. And when that um, initiative failed, he ultimately blocked the bill. So AOC and the squad, their initiative was, was very different night and day. Um, she rallied the squad plus the squad adjacent, as they like to say, to block the Iron Dome funding that was traveling through the House last month on, as you described, a bigger bus pass spending bill. But they did this in the context of very damning comments about the state of Israel. And it's not the first time that she's gone after um, security assistance. It's actually the third time this calendar year that she's done so. So um, all times unsuccessful, but this is something, this is sort of a flag that she's taken up. Um, so as sometimes happens, very unlikely bedfellows. You have very progressive members of 
the squad um, in the House, and then you have this conservative member of the Senate blocking the same initiative. Yeah, Brad, there's a couple of points I want to pick up and expand on here. Um, as Jake, Jacob pointed out that, okay, Iron Dome prevents missiles launched from Gaza, say, where in Gaza, it's Hamas in Gaza that launches the, the largest number of missiles with the most frequency. Although, and this will come back to later, Hezbollah, which is in Lebanon, has 150,000 missiles pointed at Israel, a much larger number. By using Iron Dome, you save Israeli lives. That means you save Jewish lives because Israel is the only Jewish majority state on earth. But 20% of Israelis are minorities. That means they're Arabs, they're Muslims, they're Christians, they're Jews. It saves them as well. And as Jacob pointed out, if there weren't Iron Dome and thousands of missiles were incoming to Israel, the Israelis wouldn't sit back and say, well, what can we do? We'll just, we'll just die quietly. Uh, they would hit Gaza a lot harder with probably with less precision, perhaps with ground forces, so that in effect, Iron Dome does save Palestinian lives as well. I don't know whether AOC and Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar and other members of the squad, whether they understand that, and maybe if they do, maybe they just don't care. They just don't like the fact that when there is a conflict initiated by Hamas, uh, there are more there are more casualties, more deaths in Gaza than in Israel. They feel that's inequitable. I'll leave it. Uh, I'll let you take it from there. No, thank you, Cliff. Thanks for the opportunity to join you and Enya and Jacob for this conversation. I think you characterize it well there. I mean, I, I think sometimes when we're looking at Congress, when we're talking about defense policy, it's it's easy to get kind of lost in the weeds. And I think in, in this case, it's helpful to zoom out. I mean, we're talking about roughly 4,300 or so rockets and missiles being launched by an Iranian terror proxy at Israel in an attempt to conduct mass murder, right? And if Israel did not have Iron Dome, you know, do the math. Let's say, let's say one in four of those 4,300 hit uh, a populated area. You're talking about thousands of casualties, thousands of deaths. So this was an attempt at mass murder by Tehran's proxies, as well, uh, uh, excuse me, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And the only reason that didn't happen was because of the great work of people like Jacob and the Iron Dome system, period, period. And so I, I think we kind of just kind of brush away some of the nonsense and talk about what's happening here. What would the average American say if we had 4,300 rockets and missiles launched at New York City or you know, Los Angeles or El Paso? Pick your city. Would we be worried about, I don't think we, what, when New York got hit, what did we do? We went to the other side of the world and stayed there for 20 years to get the people that hit us. So I think we, I think we need to speak clearly about this. And if I may, Cliff, real quickly on the, on the congressional angle um, uh, that, that you raised, and I think Anya brought some great detail and nuance there. Um, you know, I spent nine years or so working in the Senate, so I know a little bit about these things. I think there's two things that are true when we're looking at what, what happened with respect to Iron Dome in Congress. One is that we've, we've certainly seen some troubling developments in my view on the far left in this country with respect to support for Israel. That, I mean, that is indisputable. At the same time, I think it's important uh, to, uh, to realize that these, these movements are far from a controlling majority in American politics. This really is the far, far left. And um, I'm not saying that Friends of Israel should be complacent, far from it. But, you know, we're talking about, you, you mentioned it earlier, it was the final vote. They did not successfully block it. The final vote was 420 to nine. 
I mean, 420 votes, you can barely get that ever anytime in Congress. And nine votes, I mean, I can find nine votes in the House of Representatives to say unicorns exist. I mean, I, I would not overread nine votes. Uh, and, uh, and also, you know, this is not the first time and you cited some examples earlier this year. I mean, I would cite a vote from July 23rd, 2019 about BDS. 398 House of Representative members voted against BDS. 17 voted against it. Who was among those 17? Wait for it, wait for it. Ocasio-Cortez, Jayapal, Omar, and Tlaib. So, I mean, this is longstanding stuff. And that was 17 votes. So, and then Rand Paul, I think, and he was so right. Uh, you know, I, I had my fair uh, number of spats with Rand Paul's staff through the years, and, and I agree with far more, I disagree with far more than I agree with him on, on policy issues. But again, let's be very clear. He wanted to use money that was no longer needed for Afghanistan. That is very, very different. And Rand Paul, and the way the Senate works is via unanimous consent, by and large. And so one member can slow things up, but they can't stop it. So troubling developments on the far left but anywhere close to a threat to U.S. assistance to Israel, far from it. Yeah, I think that's fair. And just to be clear, the, I think he's concerned that money will be given to Afghanistan under the Taliban government. And so he says, let's take money out of that that's been appropriated for that purpose, and let's use it for Israel instead. Why can't we do that? That would uh, kill two birds with one stone is a bad metaphor, but you see what I mean. Right. No, it's, it, we call, in the Senate, we call that a pay for. He's talking about how do you pay for it? He wasn't opposing the spending. He's talking about how do we pay for it? You know, there's, and, and let me stick with you for one second. I'll, there's a larger issue here, and that is that America, for a long time, as the global leader, a leader of the free world, supports its allies, particularly those allies who are fighting common enemies. That's why we have NATO. That's why we have troops in Germany, troops in Italy, troops in Japan. We have 28,000 troops in South Korea to prevent the Kim dynasty from taking over the peninsula. Now, supporting Israel, not with troops, but helping them buy interceptors for Iron Dome, that's being a force multiplier. That's the U.S. doing what it does for allies. And this is an important point, I think, Qasem Soleimani, you all remember who he was. He was the commander of the Quds Force, which is Tehran's expeditionary forces that operates beyond Iran's borders, right? Uh, he was eliminated uh, by President Trump. A very effective, very brilliant commander in many ways. Three months before his death, he rather proudly announced that he had organized his career six armies in the Middle East operating beyond Iran's borders. I'm going to name them. There's Hezbollah in Lebanon, which essentially controls that failing state. There's Hamas and Palestinian Jihad in Gaza. There are the Iraqi Popular Mobilization Forces in Syria. And there's the Houthi militia uh, in Yemen. And then finally, there are Iranian forces, direct Iranian forces, uh, which operate in Syria. Now, from an American perspective, these forces funded and instructed from Tehran have to be seen as a problem. And I'm inclined to say that U.S. support for Israel and others who are willing to take on such common enemies uh, is a good thing. It's one reason why you and I, Brad, were so upset that the, the that Afghans who sided with us against the Taliban and with us against Al Qaeda were abandoned and left, in many cases, left behind to the tender mercies of the uh, 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 of the of the of the Taliban. 
does that is what I'm saying to you, Brad, that all makes good strategic sense? Is that something that people should try to get their arms around in terms of what we're doing, not just in regard to Israel, but 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 or what we should be doing globally? It does, Cliff. You know, when I when I see a threat to the United States and our interests, I you know, just kind of at risk of oversimplifying, I, I see three options. One is to ignore the threat, which proves in history, I think, to be a foolish approach. Another is to fight it ourselves, which sometimes we have to do. And another is to help partners who have a common enemy help fight on our behalf or with our assistance. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we have in Israel a country whose enemies are our enemies. Yeah, we have concerns in the Taiwan Strait or the Baltics that Israel may not have, but all of Israel's enemies are our enemies. And they are more motivated, more effective, and more capable in fighting those enemies than any country on earth, period. So we, we withhold, as Americans, assistance for Israel at our own peril. We get far more, you know, I, I helped plan and lead a congressional delegation trip to Israel for, uh, led by Senator Ayat years ago. And, and I was in a, at an Israeli military base and there was an American military officer there as a liaison. I said, hey, what's the one thing you think the US Congress should know about our support for Israel? And I'll never forget it. He said to me, we get as Americans far more than we give in this relationship. And I can go into detail on how we get that, but that's the beginning of knowledge, I think, when you're talking about security assistance to Israel from an American perspective. Well, and briefly, as Jacob was saying, the Iron Dome was a, essentially a joint project of the U.S. and Israel on many levels. And of course, you've been instrumental, and you may want to just mention this, in your idea has been the Israelis and the Americans should be sitting down on a regular basis and saying, okay, what technology do our warfighters need not have and how do we develop it efficiently, quickly, and cost effectively? No, you're Back right. Just me. No, yeah, I won't go on too long. You're, some of your listeners have heard from me before on this, but I mean, the, to me, one of the preeminent challenges confronting American defense policy right now is we got to go quicker from concept to field of capability because we're in a frenetic, frenetic military technology competition with China that's going to determine who wins and loses on future battlefields. And there is no country in the world who's better at going quick, more quickly from a concept to a fielded combat capability than Israel. The more we work with Israel, the more and less expensive, less money we'll spend, and the quicker we'll be able to field cutting edge technologies. Israel might use them in Syria. We might use them in the Taiwan Strait. It doesn't matter. In many cases, we need the same technology. And that is why the Senate Armed Services Committee has voted two years in a row now to require that the, the, the Pentagon with the concurrence of Israel stand up the U.S.-Israel Ops Tech Working Group. And now the full House of Representatives has voted the same. Meanwhile, Israel and the Pentagon are working to potentially design and stand this thing up. And that's good news both for Israel and the United States. Very important and, and very useful. J Jacob, I mentioned briefly that Hamas is the most frequent uh, launcher of missiles uh, against Israel, a frequent flyer. But Hezbollah, again, has the most, about 150,000 is the the estimate I, I've seen most recently. But another point, uh, Hezbollah ha also has a growing number of what's, what are called PGMs, precision guided missiles or precision guided um, munitions. Um, the problem there, as I understand it, but you'll know better, is that Iron Dome uh, can take out the, the, the sort of dumb missiles being launched by Hamas and, there are, and, and that Hezbollah has. But as Hezbollah gets more of these PGMs, these may be able to evade or, or overwhelm the Iron Dome system. And that becomes, so that becomes much more dangerous. What can you tell us about Hezbollah, P 
PDMs and attempts to, uh, to, to thwart um, Hezbollah from using those against Israel? Very important uh, question. And, and I'm connecting it all also what you said about uh, Suleimani and the, the Quds Force. We are surrounded by uh, forces, mostly terror groups, that are supported by Iran. So I'm talking about the militias, the Iranian militias in, uh, in Syria, the Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Hamas and the Jihad uh, in, uh, in Gaza. Now, we did a mistake, Israel did a mistake long time ago, allowing the Hezbollah in Lebanon having 150,000 what we call dumb missiles, uh, statistical missiles. But the biggest problem now is the PGMs. So it's connected to what we call the war between wars. One thing that I want to make it very, very precise. When you want to intercept a dumb missile, it's not very easy. You have to build a very, very sophisticated system like Iron Dome. But when the missile trajectory is starting, you know where the missile is going to fall. You know if it's going to be on open areas or not. You know if you want to intercept it or not. And again, statistically, if you want to hit the Kiria building in Tel Aviv, if you want four hits, you have to send 1,000 missiles. When you go to precise guided munitions, it's totally different. You want four hits, maybe you need 10 missiles. The devastating damage that can be done, it's much, much bigger. But Iron Dome can intercept also PGMs. What is the difference? There are two differences. The problem with PGMs is two. First of all, the percentage of the missiles that are going to threaten areas that people are inside are much, much, much bigger. So if in Iron Dome we had to intercept 25 to 30% of the missiles, when you talk PGMs, you have to intercept 100% of them. So we have to have much more Iron Dome system and much more Iron Dome interceptors. And the second thing is the PGM can sometimes, not all of them, some of them have the maneuvering capabilities. So when the missile starts, you don't know its final destination. So you have to assume all of them. We will go all, all on occupied areas. So we have to intercept all of them. And sometimes Iron Dome is the capabilities are sometimes limited to a certain area. And sometimes when the missile will maneuver, you have to use the David sling or even the arrow in order to intercept. But Iron Dome intercepts and can intercept PGMs and also can intercept cruise missiles and UAVs. Again, the number of Iron Dome we need against PGMs will be much higher, and there will be some PGMs that will overwhelm going into what, the... What is, what is a single interceptor cost, just so we understand that? The, the single interceptor cost, 100-150. David Sling cost 1 million. Arrow cost 3 million. But the Patriot pack 3. You know, a, a Patriot, you use two missiles per interceptor. Each one costs between four to five million. So an interception of a Patriot, it's a 10 million. An Arrow, three. A David League, one. And Iron Dome, about 100, 150. And a PGM is very cheap, right? A PGM, it, it's more expensive than the statistical one. But if you have the statistical missile, you can use about 15 to $25,000 to divert a dumb statistical missile to a PGM. You, you have to test the 150,000 of Iron Dome and compare it to the damage that you are preventing. And I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can count life, how much it costs, but the damage of a, a single uh, missile of Israel, it's a million dollars. So Brad, yeah, if, so if, if you're a, a military planner looking at Lebanon and looking at the, the missiles that Hezbollah has, you've, I guess you've got 
two choices once a conflict begins. Once is, one is you, that you use a missile defense system and prevent these missiles from reaching their targets. Uh, the other would be what? Sort of blanket bombing every place you believe that missiles are being stored and maybe launched from. Is that correct? No, exactly, Cliff. You're getting to one of the many benefits of missile defense. And, and these are arguments that I've employed in the context of the debates here in the United States about what we should spend on missile defense. I mean, and, and you or uh, Jacob touched on this earlier, by having robust missile defenses, Israel gives its, one, most importantly, it allows it to protect its citizens, which is the core responsibility of any government, of course, but it also gives decision makers time and breathing space to say, okay, what's happening here? Do we really want to do a ground invasion? Is that in our best interest? And so that has benefits for both Palestinians and Israelis. And by the way, not to get too wonky, but you know, missile defense is a core component of deterrence. But when we talk about deterrence, you talk about two types, deter deterrence by denial and retribution. You deny your enemy the ability to be confident that they can inflict specific damage on you. And you also preserve your offensive capability to counterattack and therefore, a potential aggressor has to realize that, you know, we're not going to be able to take out their offensive sites, so their counterattack might be very costly, so therefore I should reconsider. Now, of course, terrorist groups are a little harder to deter because some of them want to die, but still, you know, in the context of Iran and others, that's an important thing. And just a quick comment on costs. I take Jacob's point about the relative affordability of Iron Dome interceptors, but I would just, especially for the, the dumb rockets and missiles, those are incredibly cheap. So, you know, in the United States, we talk about bending the cost curve. We have relatively inexpensive and cheap rockets and missiles being launched at the United States and our, and our allies like Israel and very expensive interceptors being used against them. So we're on the wrong side as the good guys of that cost curve. I take Jacob's point. I'd rather spend an interceptor than have hundreds or thousands of innocent people murdered. But at the same time, we got to do better in bending that cost curve. And one way you do that is with direct aim. And yet this... Despite this, or in this whole conversation about costs and about U.S. aid, uh, is controversial in the U.S. Congress. Maybe, the, but it's also controversial in Israel. I know you've been following this. There, we, there, are, there are people there, smart people. Michael Oren is one. Inet Wolf is another. Who say, you know, maybe it's time that the Israelis don't look to the U.S. for assistance in things like buying interceptors. Even despite all the things we've just said, just go go over that and go over the arguments and, and any you know thoughts you have about the controversy within Israel. Um, sure, thanks, Cliff. So I, I would like to do that, but before that, if I can just respond to my um, to my esteemed colleagues on the call. So um, first of all, to, to talking about um, the recent Gaza wars and the uh, the devastating uh, cost of ground and ground incursions. Um, with the IDF. So you can look at this as you look at the 2021 war, war with Gaza versus the 2014 war with Gaza. It's the perfect case in point. And to Brad's point about missile defense, the fact that Israel um, could carry out and achieve its um, strategic goals in the, in the conflict without sending in ground troops, there's no, you know, there's no um, question about how many lives it saved, both Israelis and Palestinians. And you can look at that just by comparing the death tolls of the 2021 conflict where there was no um, ground war and the 2014 conflict where there was and, and, and thousands of people died. So, so that, that was just one point that I wanted to throw in there that I think illustrates what we're talking about nicely. And is also sort of in the context of, of Israel-Gaza, which is, which is the broader conversation here. So 
But as far as PGMs go, that was another point of conversation. So I mentioned the AOC has already blocked two bills in Congress um, unsuccessfully. She attempted to block two bills in Congress that had to do with, um, with the sale of JDAMs to Israel, right? These are the joint direct attack munitions, if I will, which is, which is what we're talking about. They are the kit that you put on a dumb rocket to make it a smart rocket. And these were, these were sort of, these were, um, this was a sale that had been long been planned to going to Israel and she attempted to block it twice unsuccessfully, but again, just like sort of marking this trend in this very critical, um, critical tool for Israel's arsenal. Um, and, you know, going back again to this, to the Iron Dome question, I don't want to, don't want to um, kick a dead horse here, but we keep going back to the 420 to 9 vote, which is, which is huge and it's very important. And I agree with everything that Brad said, but it's important to note also that the rallying cry of the Democrats during that vote and leading up to that vote was this is a defensive mechanism, right? We can, we can vote for this because this saves lives, it's defensive. So does that logic apply when you're talking about JDAMs or when you're talking about future US security assistance? So that's something that's a little bit concerning. Um, if you look at the trajectory of the conversation on USAID to Israel, if you Google, I tried this last night, if you Google condition security assistance to Israel between the years 2010 or 2005 and 2020, bupkis. You get a few articles here and there, very, very um, sparse. If you Google it since the last election to today, right, since 2020 to 2021, thousands of hits. And not just U.S. news outlets, Al Jazeera, you know, BBC, it, it's getting international focus. So I will just say that, you know, recognizing these trends is an important job of ours. And to Brad's point, it doesn't serve us to ignore them. So on the one hand, you don't want to make too much of them. On the other, you don't want to ignore them. Yeah, I think so. Brad, do you want to say a little bit more about precision J-dams and, and what that controversy is about? Sure. Yeah. No, I, I think uh, Anya made some really important points there. And, uh, no, JDAM, Joint Direct Attack Munitions, is a way that we, the good guys, make sure that we hit what we're trying to hit. Now, let's contrast that with how Hezbollah is going to use their precision-guided munitions, right? So Israel and the United States use our JDAMs, our precision munitions, to make sure we hit the terrorists and not hit the civilians, right? Hezbollah is going to use their precision-guided munitions to kill as many civilians as possible hit chemical plants or, or other facilities like that to, to basically create a weapons of mass destruction event where you have, you know, chemical other things spreading and killing thousands of people. So, you know, again, I, I started to keep coming back to the moral component of this. One side is trying to prevent civilian casualties and the other is deliberately trying to murder them. So if you provide Israel joint direct attack munitions, you're enabling them to more precisely hit the Hezbollah, Hamas, or Palestinian Islamic Jihad terrorists and prevent civilian casualties. And so, um, I, I, you know, as uh, Alyssa Slotkin and other brave and well-informed Democrats argued on Capitol Hill, this is the opposite of SMART, trying to block uh, what we're doing in terms of Israel providing missile defense and precise uh, attack capabilities. And I think some of this discussion kind of falls into a unhelpful and oversimplistic offensive-defensive argument. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time crafting key points for members of Congress. You know, of course, you're going to argue that Iron Dome is defensive because that's the strongest argument to make. 
But again, I don't think we should overinterpret. You, you don't argue your weak argument, you argue your best argument. The best argument is it's defensive. But I've also got a very strong argument for why we provide, should provide Israel offensive capabilities. Because the more potent Israel is, the more secure Israel will be, and the more they can fight our common adversaries, and the less civilian casualties there'll be in those attacks. So there, you know, maybe instead of nine votes against that, you get 30. But that's still nowhere close to, as I said earlier, to a controlling majority. We can talk about what is going on in Congress, uh, selling or not selling Israel J-Dams or F-15s or F-35s. It doesn't have anything to do, anything, with MOU and aid to Israel. Because even if we get zero dollar from the United States, we decide we just found oil in the sea, so we have billions of dollars. We have to buy something. And one of the biggest sellers of this ammunition is the United States. So they can sell us or not selling us JDAM, never mind if we get or not getting aid from the United States. If we have billions of dollars from another uncle and we like to buy our next generation uh, fighters, we can buy Rafale, we can buy uh, Sukhoi, or we can buy F-35s. So Congress can block F-35 to Israel if, if, even if they give us zero dollar. Of course, if they give us aid, we buy this from the United States and we give a lot of work for the Americans. So if someone will tell me that tomorrow morning, Israel should get conditional aid from the United States, I'm telling you, I will be the first one who will say, I don't want it. I negotiated the MOU for three and a half years. It was not even for one minute on the table that this aid is conditioned by something. The opposite, when we started, there are two elephants that didn't come to the room. No Iran, no Palestinians. No, they, okay, you want the aid? Go do peace with Palestinians. You, I need more money because the Iran deal is bad, or you need less money because the Iran deal is good. All those things didn't go to, to the room. And the last thing, I think Brad mentioned, the MOU and the aid to Israel I don't want to say it's, it's more important to the United States, to Israel, to be hypocrisy. But when I finished the MOU negotiations, we wrote a slide. Each side wrote why the MOU is good for the US, why the MOU is good for Israel. I said, I told them, look, at the end, you give me 3.8 billion, and you have to also te- tell, tell me thank you that I agree to take it. Because the, the things that is going good for the United States, this aid, it's it's you it's 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 it behind imagine you know Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. We are doing things from the United States. One day of war in Afghanistan costs sometimes more than a yearly uh, aid to Israel, and I think you get from the aid to Israel much more than you get. And of course, according to the QME, the qualitative military edge low. When you give this aid to Israel, and I'm telling you that I'm one notch behind my, my adversaries, you are allowed to send and to sell those weapons to the good countries or around the world. So all those issues are saying that, yes, I have, I have some good friends in Israel that saying we should think the moment that someone in Israel will think that we are changing something in our, in our behavior because we are getting the aid from the United States, we have to rethink. I'm telling you, our thinking about what we are doing, especially in the things that are very important and little to Israeli defense and security and, of course, existence, doesn't have anything to do. We are not thinking, okay, let's do it because Israel, uh, United States give us aid. About China, yes, I think it's affecting and it's good it's affecting. 
we don't have to put a finger in in United States eye when we are getting this aid. I, uh, number of things I want to discuss, but in, in, in really in the few minutes we we have left, one is I think people need to understand what, what's this concept of conditionality. If you have some member of Congress who quite candidly doesn't understand the situation in the Middle East very well and says, "Well, we'll give this aid to Israel, but it needs to withdraw from the West Bank," not understanding that if the Israel should withdraw from the West Bank without security guarantees, then Hamas takes over from Fatah, and pretty soon you have missiles and mortars being launched from the West Bank at Israel, and that makes the situation much worse. I'm afraid some members of Congress don't understand don't understand something that basic. However, um, I also think a lot of people don't understand, and Brad, I know you've thought about this, is that we have these various actors, Hamas and Hezbollah and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, that are all affiliated with Iran. But it's also true, and this, people, this, is, this is not as well known, that there is a sort of a, a blossoming partnership between the Islamic Republic of Iran and, of all things, um, the People's Republic of China. You, you want to just talk about that for a second? No, thank you, um, Cliff, for that question. I think uh, a lot of times in Washington, D.C., in particular among Pentagon circles, there is a, a, a an idea that emerges implicitly or explicitly that you know, great power competition, which is the number one priority for, for most American defense thinkers right now, particularly China, happens everywhere except the Middle East, right? The great power competition happens in the Indo-Pacific, it happens in Europe, but we kind of have this great power competition free zone in the Middle East. Of course, that's ridiculous and nothing's further from the truth. And, um, you know, uh, just, uh, just one example I would cite, last month, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization which is an intergovernmental organization essentially led by China and Russia, unanimously decided to elevate Iran to full membership. Now we can debate what that really means in practice, but I, I think what it uh, symbolizes is a growing security, in part, a secu growing security cooperation between China and Iran. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that it needs to inform what the United States, Israel, and our Arab partners do together. You know, as we detailed in a recent FTD publication, uh, you know, Iran and China just a while back signed a 25-year strategic partnership. The final terms of that agreement remain secret, but a leaked draft talked about things like Chinese-Iranian military exercises, weapons development, intelligence sharing. And we've seen some of that already between China and Iran. The 2019 Iran Military Power Report by the Defense Intelligence Agency assessed that Iran has acquired significant assistance from China to, quote, established domestic production capabilities for major weapons programs. We've seen Tehran purchase we some weapons from China already, and we've seen military exercises. We saw them in 2019 between with China and Iran, and there's also some plan for 21-22. And so we, Israel and the United States must assume that it's just a matter of time until Iran gets increasing capabilities, not only from Russia, which they've been doing for a long time, but also from China. And that has direct implications for Israel's defense budget. This $3.8 billion that they get from us, it, you know, with full deference to Jacob, is fundamental to Israeli security. Israel needs more defense spending, not less. If you take out that $3.8 billion, Israel's in a, in a bad place. Jacob, this is the last question I'm going to ask you, to, you today. The Abraham Accords, how does this, in your view, change the equation in terms of Israeli defense um, and, and Israeli posture in the Middle East, militarily? 
I think I think it's very very important. We have to remember the one deal how it's affecting the Saudis and the Emirates and all the others. I think one of the main reasons that those countries came to this Abraham Accord is that they wanted someone besides them together with Israel, together with the United States, confronting their biggest adversary, the Iranians. And the message that is being sent now from especially Washington is that Iran is planning to be nuclear. Iran is violating almost every paper that they are signing one day after. So this Abraham Accord, the Emirates, Sudan, Bahrain, I, I hope will be the future Saudis, they did it because of their interests. It's very good for the United States, for Israel, and also very good for the world. And it should deter the Iranians from continuing doing their very bad things in the in, in our region. And this will be my last question for you today. We, we also should mention that the military aid invested in Israel it's largely spent in the U.S., isn't it? I mean, the aid comes in the form of foreign military funding. That's what it's called, F- FMF. And that's designed to facilitate foreign military sales of American military equipment. Now, the utility of that is um, that you've, it's not just you're creating jobs, but you're keeping a, a, an industry uh, functioning and well-funded as well. In other words, this this is important for, for America in that it, it, it keeps our military industry at a, at, a, at a high level, or it helps to to do so with like three quarters of the aid spent to the, in the United States. You go along with that? A hundred percent. You know, I think that one thing that we all agree on strongly on this call is that the U.S. Um, security assistance to, to Israel has been great for both countries. I mean, it's it's great for the US, it's great for Israel, it's secured the Jewish state. It is it is something that I think we can all agree has been um, a boon. Um, the, the, um, to your question, you know, look, let me, let me take it back a step. You asked me about the Israeli perspective. I think what's going on in Israel, this is a guess, I haven't, I haven't had conversations, but some of the voices coming out of Israel in light of these sort of threats on aid have been, maybe it's time to reevaluate. They're all nuanced and everyone said something slightly differently, but I think that what they're seeing is this trend that we've been talking about of just this becoming more and more part of the conversation in the Democratic Party. We saw three presidential candidates who brought it up in the the 2020 cycle. Um, There are continuing efforts, not just by the squad, but by other folks, some of them, are prominent and have um, leadership positions on the Appropriations Committee in the House. So th- it's just something that we're seeing more and more of. And I think the Israeli response is, is, is kind of taking pause and trying to evaluate what the, the long-term effects um, and what the, the trajectory of the conversation, um, where it's going. I think another really important thing to mention, and I, would, I really want to get this out on, on this podcast, is that this idea of conditioning aid, it's really farcical. And I'm sure Brad can talk to this too, because all U.S. foreign assistance is conditioned. Um, it's all conditioned by um, existing U.S. law, including um, the Foreign Assistance Act and the Arms Export Control Act and Leahy laws. So all the aid that goes to Israel is already governed by these by these laws. And, um, and there are mechanisms in place to make sure that the money is spent correctly. So, so it's, you know, the idea that there, that there, that there's going to be that aid to Israel should be conditioned is, is a little bit, um, is a little bit of a, of a, of a semantic play because all aid is conditioned inherently. 
Brad, I guess here's my, my, my exit question for, for you. I think we're agreeing that aid from the U.S., I would say not just military aid, any aid, should be in the U.S. interest. But we should think of U.S. interest creatively and a bit broadly in terms of what that means. If it means we can shoulder less burden um, in various parts of the world because others are taking the lead, that's a, that's a useful thing. Uh, if it means that we have Iron Dome and we can use it, and I think we are using Iron Dome, right now to defend some of our troops in at least uh, two, two, two places, you correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that's a good thing. If we can utilize Israeli intellectual capital um, in terms of cyber warfare, in terms of missile defense more broadly, that's useful too. But that should be the approach we take. Is uh, it, That's what you're saying. I don't think anybody's disagreeing. It's certainly what you're saying, isn't it? It is. I, I believe, I, I would go further. I, I would say all U.S. foreign assistance should further American interests and values. And that is why I, as an American, am a firm believer in U.S. assistance to Israel, because I believe it's in the American interest and it reflects our values, period. And, and, uh, and you know, I mean, I, I know everyone on this call agrees, but U.S. assistance to Israel is not charity. You know, it's a wise strategic investment that benefits Americans. I mean, just one very quick 30-second anecdote that I've highlighted before is that you know, Israel, as Jacob knows far better than me, has confronted this, this problem of terror tunnels with Hezbollah and Hamas digging tunnels under the border so that terrorists can go through these underground tunnels, come up in the middle of the night and kill Israeli men, women and children in their beds. Right. So Israel would ha- led a, an effort more advanced than any country in the world to try to find and destroy these tunnels. So America came along, and said, hey, ooh, that's interesting. How can we help? Can we provide funding? You know what happened? We not only helped them with this, they were already doing it on their own, but then we took that technology and used it on our southern border to find drug tunnels that were being used to smuggle drugs under our borders that terrorists might use to infiltrate our country and conduct attacks in our our country. You know where else that technology was used? It was used to identify ISIS terror tunnels in Syria and Iraq, trying to come closer to our military bases to kill American troops. So that's just one example how our relationship with Israel benefits America. This is not charity. This is a smart strategic investment standing with our leading ally, democratic ally in the Middle East. And I, I, and I think, um, you know, I think we just need to remind ourselves this is not charity. This is a wise investment. And what Brett said before about the obstacle is we're going to change the mechanism. Instead of going what Israel needs, give us aid, we buy for Israel, we are saying, let's see what the United States needs, let's take the Israeli ingenuity and technology, do it for the United States, and Israel will benefit from it. I think this is the mechanism for the future, besides the aid for Israel, also what the United States can gain from the Israel ingenuity and technology. All right. Dude, until next time, thank you very much, Brad. Thank you, Enia. Then thank you, Jacob. And thanks to all of you for joining us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.